I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. Yes, Bristol Unpacked is back. We are here for a brand new series talking to fascinating characters on interesting topics from all across the city. And first up is Tom Morris, who is the outgoing director of the Bristol Old Vic, which is the oldest theatre in continuous operation in the English-speaking world. But has the institution evolved? It gets a huge amount of public money. Is this justified? And does it reach all communities across the city? We talked to him about the simmering culture war over arts and something that's being weaponised and politicised by the current Tory government. But I lose my journalistic uh, composure amid me slightly fawning over Tom Morris's brother, who was a bit of a hero of mine. All will be revealed. Enjoy. And if you want to become a member, don't forget you can chuck a pound in a month. And uh, tell you what, if you want, suggest some guests and we might get them on this show. Enjoy. Uh, the, the listener may be put off their cereal or their evening dinner with this. This is the first episode I've recorded, topless. Is it? Yeah, because it's so bloody hot. And I had to close the windows because it, with the, you keep the windows open, it lets too much sound in. So I'm sweating here uh, with a towel and next topless. to me. Well, topless, I'm, yeah. I'm, it's, I'm very honoured. <laughs> I'm going to try and keep that image out of my mind. You are, yeah, yeah, don't blame you, don't blame you. Uh, great to have you on. You are <laughs> the, well, outgoing director of the Bristol Old Vic now. How long have you got left, Tom? Um, well, I'm, I've said I'll be here until the autumn. The incoming artistic director, who's called Nancy Medina, has got some other commitments. Um, and basically I announced, I think in January-ish or February, that... I would do this season and then that would be the last one this year. Um, and, I'm, I'm, and I said I'd be flexible about exactly when I, when I leave. So it'll be sometime in the autumn. And it was announced uh, with a bit of pomp and ceremony and you got a bit of press coverage, didn't you? What, about six months ago? You had a bit of na- national coverage. Why, why, why have you decided to leave? Well, I've been here for <laughs> more than 12 years. And that's quite a long, that's quite a long stint. Um, and during that time, I've learned a, a huge amount about about the city and kind of fallen in love with it, really. Um, and been in this very lucky position of being able to um, oversee some of the refurbishment of the building we've done and um, and try out a few things in the theatre. Um, and coming out of the pandemic, I, I just felt it was it was the right moment to kind of hand the baton on to someone else. Um, it, it sort of seemed to me really to fit with... It's, we're all trying to see the world in a new way, aren't we, as we come out of this hideous couple of years we've been through. And, and that so that sort like of propelled right you to, to kind of have a think and yeah. redirect what you want to do. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's talk quick. Let, let, we'll come back to you. I just want to, uh, for those that aren't theatre um, lovers or people who go regularly, um, some people may go uh, a lot. Some people may not. But I mean, I I genuinely didn't realise in my ignorance <laughs> being in the city that uh, whilst it's been um, the actual theatre has been under the um, been the old Vic from since the mid nineteen forties. It's actually 
as it stands on King Street, the theatre itself is the oldest continuing operating theatre in the English-speaking world. Yeah, that's right. I mean... That's, that's mental. It's I, never knew, I, I, never, I never knew that. Honestly, never knew that. <laughs> it's a series of very lucky events because um, this theatre was built in 1766 um, when, you know, Bristol was a p- prosperous place and... Um, and it had a bit of you know some some people put together some money to build a build a theatre and and they asked the um, you know the greatest actor of the of their age um, who should design the theatre and he sent his carpenter who was a guy called Saunders and said he'll build it for you this was David Garrick <laughs> of the Garrick Club fame who's basically the sort of Harrison Ford of his day. I don't know what he is. He sent his carpenter to do it. And uh, immediately everyone said, this theatre is the most beautiful theatre we've ever seen. Uh, so much so that when they, they came to do some changes for the theatre in Bath a few years later, um, everyone complained that they hadn't copied the one in Bristol because everyone agreed it was the most beautiful, the most beautifully designed theatre. And then, by luck, essentially, this bit of Bristol, King Street, was kind of abandoned in the middle part of the 19th century. All the money moved up the hill to Clifton and Kingsdown, and no one bothered knocking anything down. Oh, wow, okay. So it was just left, it was just left dormant, was it? Yeah, and it was, well, it wasn't empty. It was putting on pantomimes and what was known as lowbrow entertainment (laughs) (laughs) throughout the back end of the 19th century. And then gradually people discovered it again in the 20th century and said, hang on, this old wreck that we forgot to demolish, this is the same place that people in the 18th century said was the most beautiful theatre in Britain, and it's still there. Basically, the first change they made was they sawed through the timbers in the ceiling where the old workshop was, and they tipped up the whole ceiling in order to build 500 new seats at the cheapest price. And what that te- and that was in 1800. And what that tells you is that from the beginning, this theatre was playing to everyone from every walk of life in and Bristol. And that was always the case, wasn't it? I mean, I, you know, uh, in in my in my sort of limited knowledge about um, the history of sort of theatre, the, the obvious thing was that you know, from sort of Shakespeare and, and around that period, that it would have been it would have been the equivalent to people going to watch, you know, the, the football. Or, yeah. or, or going to watch rugby, wouldn't it? It, would, it, it was a, it was a kind of, uh, it was a thing that was for the masses back then. Totally, it was for, it was absolutely for everyone. I got a clue when I saw an old music hall poster in London, um, in one of those old theatres in London. There was a poster from the middle of the nineteenth century, and it was advertising a mixed bill of all <laughs> like circus acts and variety and all that. And it the headline was five hours continuous flow of amusement. <laughs> and I said, I said to someone, "What the hell? What you can't people? What were they doing sitting through five hours?" <laughs> And this, this guy I was with, he said, he knew about the history of theatre. He said, look, people's houses weren't heated. So if you could go somewhere where there was activity and 
society and be in one place for five hours for the whole evening and get something to eat and drink and meet people that's what you do that's what the theater that's what the theaters were at what point did that change a bit then tom we'll, we'll move a little bit on to the to the present day around this whole debate around art and theater and making that relevant to you know to everybody but at what point presumably did it change a bit and become considered a bit more culturally highbrow for, for want of a better way of putting well, it well that's a good that's a really good important question the, the, the people were quarreling about this even in the 18th century so when when this theater was built there's an amazing pamphlet actually from before it was built um which which is uh, written by a religious man of bristol who says basically he says you can't allow them to build this theater because if the young people get to hear about it they won't just be there one night a week they'll be there every night of the week losing their souls oh, to the passions okay. of the stage <laughs> and then there are other people saying no 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 you go to the theater you'll improve yourself it'll be like a classical education that was an argument that was raging and, and has throughout the whole of theater history would but that I have think, been a religious context to this at that time would that, would that have been yeah, a yeah, there was, yeah. yeah the religious people some of the religious people in bristol really didn't didn't like it. Didn't like it at all in the 18th century. Um, but the um, and interestingly, Hannah Moore, who was um, one of the the great female playwrights um, of the late 18th century, and there's gave, a school named after her, isn't there? There is. Yeah. So she gave up playwriting as she became more religious as she got older. <laughs> she thought it was the work of the devil. But they, uh, but um, I think the problem really happened. Um, all, I mean, not just here in Bristol. When in the in the 20th century, when people started discovering this beautiful old theatre, and they kind of forgot at that point that it should be for everyone. They said, "Oh, look, there's this beautiful old theatre, and it's all to do with the history of English theatre." And we'll and and something went wrong, which meant that in the rebuilding of British society after the Second World War. When so many things went right, when the National Health Service was set up, you know, the welfare state was invented, and and actually when um, arts funding, public arts, so Bristol, this theatre, in in 1946, um, the government decided that they would experiment with the idea of subsidising a theatre outside London. Didn't happen before, and so that what they did was they asked the Old Vic in London to send a company of actors to Bristol. And that's why it's called the Bristol Old Vic, because it was the, it was a, the Bristol Old Vic company performing at the theatre, which they then called the Theatre Royal. But it then, I guess, became, uh, you said about that sort of post-war period, I guess you then had the sort of the emergence more of, of sort of working men's clubs and sort of the comedy circuit, and, that, and people tended to gravitate a bit more in you know, the dan the, the music halls in that direction and theatre moved in a slightly different direction would, would that be fair i think that's right i think that's right i mean i think that um there were at various points in the second half of the 20th century there were there were always you know you talk to kath johnson who wrote mamma mia oh um, yeah yeah she yeah, would, know, um, you've probably had her on this on this well, um, well actually program. we know her quite well because my uh, my mother-in-law so good friends of her um, and knew her before she she wrote them um, they used to share a house together believe it or not right well well there you are she will talk about coming as a as a child from you know with just coming to this theater actually as as a kid and um 
and getting very inspired by what by, by what she found in the theatre. Um, but at the same time, the general rule is, I think, in the second half of the twentieth century, people worried about whether whether they deserved to be in a theatre, and theatre somehow got ideas above its station and forgot that if it's got any value, it's got to be for everyone. It's got to be for everyone. And do you think that that sort of has taken uh, it's taken a long time to undo some of that stuff, and arguably some of that still there is an echo of that in the perception in some communities to this day now? Absolutely. It, it, it still, there's still a big job of work to be done um, just to make everyone in Bristol feel welcome. <laughs> And I think, I mean, as a broader sense, I mean, not just Bristol, just as a, as a, you know, theatre as a, for, to be seen as something for everybody. And I know that's something that you, within your twelve years, you've been there, you've been quite acutely aware of trying to, um, to shift that, um, that perception or try and nudge that and move that a bit more, um, in that direction. You, I mean, you've specifically done quite a lot of work around, um, diversity. Yeah. Um, and on the history, just before we get into that, on the history of the old Vic itself, you you came out quite strongly and and had some criticism in some circles, I think, from whether it was people on your board or, or funders around talking about the um, the funding and the legacy of the theatre itself, which which was directly connected to the transatlantic slave trade through the merchants that were part of these people that donated money for it in the first place. Um that's obviously a whole thing that's happening in Bristol post Colston. You know, yeah. it was happening in certain circles pre Colston, but it certainly accelerated that. People kind of owning, um, I think even the Church of England have come out, haven't they, this week? I think that they have. Uh, you know, you, you've come, you were quite bold, and it was an article in the Guardian to come out at a time to, to say that, you know, a couple of years ago. And you did get a mixed response. Yeah. Yeah, I did get told off a bit, but... I'm going to read your quote out of this case. So you've said, the history of this theatre and this city cannot be buried if we want to make social change now, partly because its burial is a denial of the very real legacy of damage which leaves on our fellow citizens, but partly because there are lessons about how to make social change happen now. That's the point, isn't it? This People think this stuff is not stuck in history. It's, it, it, it's relevant to people's experiences now. Yeah, I mean, I feel that very passionately, and I, and I remember... Um, that w- when I was starting to find out about for for myself about the history of the city, um, I would ask people about it because it did seem to me very odd that this theatre had never put on a major play that dealt with the enslavement of Africans, um, which was essentially that the the, um, the income generator which had made this city built this city in its in its modern sense. And I was that strange for you, sorry to jump in, coming from because I'd know you've been working in London when you came came here, where you know, because I don't my sense is, and I've worked in different places, but that Bristol was particularly quite slow at owning some of this stuff. I think it was, but as soon as you dig into the history, you realize that you know Bristol might have been the place where it was happening, but the whole British economy was being you know, was essentially growing fat on this evil trade. And the, but I remember talking to people about it and they would time and again, really, you know, educated middle-class white Bristolians would say, would say, look, you can't judge those people then 
in the 18th century by today's standards because it was a different world, they would say to me. It was a different world. Um, it was normal. Everyone was doing it, and people just didn't know it was wrong. And I'd go, oh, really? Is that right? And then when I started actually reading the history from the 18th century, there's a guy called Thomas Clarkson who went who went to the pub, the Seven Stars pub, um, he was a Quaker. He came to Bristol in order to find out what was actually happening. And he talked to people who worked on the ships. And he talked to the captains who were running the ships. And he talked to the um, the sailors who were forced to work on the ships. This is the other, you know, levels. The white working class of Bristol were, were part of the... Um, a kind of system of victimization at, at, at this point. Um, and he writes, he wrote it all down. He said, everyone I talk to agrees that the trade is execrable. That's like the extremity of evil, but no one sees any prospect of change. You see people like Edmund Burke, who was the MP, who said in Parliament that it was wrong. Of course everyone knew it was wrong. The point is that they were, they were too attached to the economic benefits to change it, you know, and particularly, uh, you know, and, and it's related to, to to the Colson statue as well, and and similar statues across across the country. There was a period in Victorian Britain where there was an, there was a deliberate sort of attempt to uh, create a bit of a, a bit of distance from from the eels of empire overseas and to sort of glorify and um, these figures like Colston. Um, to put them on a, on a kind of pedestal to almost create a kind of myth of, of these uh, philanthropic characters that were selfless and doing good um, to, to almost push back against some of that stuff that which was bubbling up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and my thing in terms of now, the, the, the point is that if you, if you accept that people in the 18th century knew it was wrong, then suddenly you, you discover, and it's all in Mad Dresser's amazing book, Slavery Obscured, you discover this battle that was going on in Bristol where people were arguing about it because it was obviously wrong, but there was an argument on both sides. And you suddenly realise that there were people who were deciding to try and make change. And actually, it becomes inspiring because you go, what are the things that we that we fail to do anything about? Whether it's the, the the kind of the way we respond to refugees and asylum seekers, or whether it's how we deal with homelessness or any kind of social inequality in the city. And essentially, we do the same thing. We say it's too difficult to change. The economics are too complicated. Of course, it's wrong. Of course, it's wrong that someone's sleeping in King Street. But it's too hard to change, and basically, we're making exactly the same kind of moral. Well, well that thinking—the thinking sets the tone, doesn't it? I think, and it sets the tone for people to, um, yeah, to sort of dismiss dismiss those experiences as, as not being relevant, being now, and, and and that happens quite a lot. I mean, even in the context of, um, even in the context of of sort of theatre itself, that there would be people, and we've seen it with, you know, I know plenty of people that wouldn't go to the Colson Hall, um, that maybe now are, you know, moving a little bit more in that direction with the name change and stuff like that. But there certainly was, I think, theatres and certain musicals and places in the city that for, certainly for black people, um, were, were did not feel as if it was for them. So you did make a concerted effort to try and change and alter that. And I want to talk a little bit about City Conversations, which was a, a partnership between Bristol Old Vic, um, Bristol Post and uh, Ujima Radio. 
Um, and that was that was a kind of a you say about how it affects now. That was a the sort of the jumping off point for that was the Faces of Evil front page um, on the Bristol Post, where um, it's pretty kind of pretty out in the public domain where there was a photograph of lots of people connected with a crime and 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 i just think there was a general sense of, of the media and particularly the bristol post at the time not really sort of demonizing that community um and and then i think fast forward on a on a few years um there was a, a slightly a, an acceptance of that um a, a will to try and build bridges and some tough and brave conversations took place to get this up and running in the first place before we get to the events there were three events in the city um were there some quite tough conversations that you would have had to have had with each other so that would have been mike norton the who was then the then uh, editor of bristol post and roger griffiths the director at ujima well yeah again it was it was happenstance and 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 there being a a feeling of change in the city anyway I don't think, you know, theatres can't make change, but they can help to hold it, is, is my belief. So Mike had come, he was a friend of the theatre, he'd got to know what we were doing, and I discovered, basically, he'd grown up as a working-class boy in Bristol, um, and he'd come to the theatre as a child um, and sat in the gods and watched plays, and that had given him the confidence to do English A-level and then do a degree in English at university, and that had led him to become a really significant figure in, in newspaper publishing. Um, so, um, And I used to talk to him about, about what we were trying to do because I thought he was just a, an interesting guy with a bit of influence. At the same time, Roger had literally come and knocked on the door of the, our temporary offices, which were at 16 King Street in one of those old houses, when we were doing the rebuilding, he knocked on the door and he said, I saw you at an event at Watershed um, and you said you were trying to open the door to people like me um, and you're not doing it, you haven't done enough. You're talking <laughs> about it and you're not doing it. Yeah. Do you know, Roger? You know, you know, yeah, I do, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I said, uh, what do you want me to do about it then? He said, I want you to let me in now and have a meeting. And I said, okay. <laughs> Um, and and we he was then really trying to change Ajima into a kind of um, into a kind of arts agency representing artists, uh, mostly black artists, but artists from backgrounds who um, who wouldn't who weren't part of the cultural establishment in Bristol and give them a chance, give them some support. So we got into a conversation with him because we were in the middle of doing this refurbishment, and I was constantly saying to myself, what is this really about, this refurbishment? It has to be about reconnecting the building, reconnecting this beautiful old theatre with the city, which is somehow... Which, 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 which is reconnecting it to its roots. Absolutely right. From the, from the get-go, yeah. as we said at the top. Yeah. yeah. And I just said to him, how many how many um, black readers have you got the, of the Bristol Post? And he said, um, almost none. And, and at that time, they would have had yeah, uh, yeah. no black journalists either. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I said, why is that? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying everything. And I said, are you? And then I went to Roger and I said, why does no one, why, why, are, there no, why are there no black readers of the Bristol Post? Why is it? And he said, it's because of the faces of evil. That's what he said. This headline, um, when a whole lot of people were arrested, and that was, that was the headline that the Bristol Post published. And I said, would you be prepared to take a meeting with Mike? 
in order to tell him because he needs to hear it from you. He says he wants to engage. Would you take a meeting um, in which you tell him why he's got no black readership? And Roger, to his credit, said, yes, I would. Bristol Cable, we are in need of more members. We want to sustain our public model of ownership and we want to use it to talk about interesting things in the city, controversial things, challenging topics. That's online, this podcast, in the newspaper and events that we do all across the board. So please check out the website and if you want to chuck some money in and become a member of the Bristol Cable, that would be brilliant. Back to the chat. So an uncomfortable conversation was brokered, but a, a, but a conversation that needed to happen. Yeah, and and just and and then um, Roger started helping Mike recruit some black writers for, including himself, uh, for yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, for, for Bristol Post. And Roger said, you know, 2018, we knew we were then by then we were approaching reopening the building. He said, 2018, I want to declare it a year of change for Bristol. And I said, why is that? He said, it's the 50th anniversary of the, of the Black Power salute. Um, and then we, you know, there were a whole lot of other anniversaries. Well, we'd, also, we'd also had the Running Me Trust report the year before, um, which showed that Bristol was the most segregated yeah. core city in the UK. That was one thing that I think I'd be interested to talk, talk to you about is the legacy of this, that I think no doubt um, – there has been a significant in terms of in terms of the old Vic, um, not just Bristol itself was, but in terms of the old Vic, there's no doubt been a significant increase in the amount of people from the black community that's connected to the theatre. You've had a number of um, a number of uh, kind of plays there, you know, that that will automatically do that. That feature feature black actors, probably increasingly more so in the last sort of four to five years. Do, do, do you feel as if you've you've reached far enough with some of those? white working class communities like the people at Merchants Enough? No, I, I really, I really don't. And, and um, again, I remember you coming up to me in the bar here a bit like Roger and saying to me, you, you think you're doing great, don't you? But you haven't done enough. <laughs> Is that what <laughs> you said to me? Did I you say have, that? Oh, right. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and in yeah. a different way, you know, Joe Sims, who's a big ally and friend of the theatre. Jason's the, the, act, he's the actor. The, the actor, actor yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Because, and he said, right, he said, look at what you're doing. It's all great, but there's nothing for the people from South Bristol where I grew up. There's nothing there for them. I need to, I need you to put on a play about football. And, and that's what we did, you know. He did it, grow up in Kingswood. He likes to say he grew up in Cyprus, but he oh, did grow up in Kingswood. <laughs> but, yeah. but, he, yeah. but he knows everybody. He, you know, he's a Bristol City fan. He knows everybody from that area, and he's embedded in, you know, around that. Yeah, I, I went to that. was the Red Lion, wasn't it? It was called. And, and I, I mean, I am, I've got to be honest with you, probably somebody who's been, I, um, a few times as a kid, I probably haven't been for 20 odd, 20 odd years. That was the first time I'd been to the Old Vic for about that amount of time, I think. Um, and I thought it was great. Uh, and what I did find, I had conversations. I've been to the old Vic for the, I think that was the Channel 4 thing that I saw you at, wasn't it? For, for like a couple of events and gone in for a drink, but actually just sit and watch a play. And like Joe's a mate, that's sort of, so I was supporting him a bit. But I had various conversations with people in the bar afterwards. And I, and I was kind of deliberately sort of drilling in a bit to find out. And I reckon I must speak to about at least a dozen people that had never been to the theatre before. That was their first time, and I thought, well, that's bloody brilliant, then, isn't it? That that just shows that if you get the right people 
you do the right type of story. Obviously, it was about football. That that, that, that you get the right people involved that have the, that traction and those connections. It, it, it will and can happen. And I think you've sort of wittingly or unwittingly touched upon an interesting point there, which is that there is this thing, we will put something on it, and not just in art and theatre, in, in lots of things. We will do something for the black community as if it's one homogenous group that all agree with each other. And actually, something like the Red Lion, I know an awful lot of people, you know, from football teams I've played for, that, that would be, that are black, that would be far more their cup of tea than yeah. something else <laughs> which would be aimed at the black community. So it's kind of, that it, it's it, it's recognising that a little bit, I think. And there is a there is a sense a little bit in some of the cultural and arts institutes, institutions in the city that... Um, there is a there is a I won't say a certain type of black person, but it is a bit more I would say middle class or people that are interested in that. It's not necessarily uh, from outside that bubble a little bit. Yeah, I mean completely. I mean what what Chino Adimbo is a wonderful playwright who's on our board says is she says time and again the black middle class of Britain is invisible. No one writes about it. No one talks about it. No one thinks about it. But it's absolutely there because we just want to put everyone in a pigeonhole. And have that kind of assumption. Um, so, so this is all stuff which is around making uh, making the old Vic, making theatre relevant to, to, you know, to people and to everybody and, and how sometimes you need to do that to, to, um, to sort of reach out and connect. Um, and, and I guess that, that there's a sort of slight a duty, I don't know if duty is the right word, but, or a... a um, an ambition or a vision to do that. Also, I guess because a lot of theatre, and I don't know the internet's all like, like the old, there's a lot of public money as well that, that's invested. Is, would that be would that be right? That's right. I mean, there is. Yeah, we, we're funded by the Arts Council. I have to say that you know the City Council used to fund us not very not not very much, but in numbers terms a lot like £270,000 a year we used to get from the city council um, and that was the money that basically funded a whole lot of outreach programs across the city um, all of the work you know that we do in Southmead that we do in Lockleys um, and the work that we we have been doing in Knoll and it's all funded from that pot and since 2018 that has gone down to almost zero so so there is a there's a there's a big for me there's a big problem as i look at the future not just of this organization but um the cultural life of the city that just at the point where I think we really are discovering that the opportunity to be creative can have a huge impact on people's lives if we can only share it. Just at the point that that's happening and just at the point where we most need it, um, the local authority is reducing its investment in that activity. Why, Why is that, do you know? I think it's, honestly, I think it's budget pressure that the local authority budgets are being slashed um and there's more money if you like going through the the new regional authority into the region and they are talking about culture whether they'll do anything about it i don't know but i i've always so felt, you would get 270,000 a year from the council up uh, from how long until when um that was up until 2018 okay and you would hand say arts council money what would you get art, art, about arts a million, council a million. Well, okay yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that but, is public. That's all public money. So public therefore, money. it's about it, it, so the whole kind of broadening the audience thing isn't just 
you know, a nice thing to do. It's sort of paramount, really, if it's if if it's, it's public it's money. Part yeah. Of a, yeah, it's part of our. Um, I think as a as a subsidised organisation, we're still a subsidised. So you look at the Hippodrome, which is, by the way, doing great business at the moment. Um, I had a meeting today, which is fantastic. That's a purely commercial theatre. What are they doing? They're finding out purely what is going to entertain people. What are the what are the tickets that are going to sell? And they're doing a fantastic job of of doing that and putting that program together and entertaining the region. It's, it's amazing and really important. Is it still all, it's sort of widow, widow twanky and he's, he's behind you and all that sort well, of stuff. It's a lot and, of is that, it, yeah. But it's also yeah. big musicals on the road, yeah. you know, it's Lion King and yeah, yeah, all yeah, of those yeah. things, Les Mis and people go and see it. They love it. Mamma Mia's coming in. That's going to be great. There's lots of people just going to go and have a fantastic night out. But what we, but do, you can do stuff that's a bit, uh, I guess because it's public funding, because I guess this is like the BBC have its purpose remit, a similar kind of thing. I would imagine you can be a bit more less commercially driven and do some sort of not dare I say more interesting, but more niche. Uh, yeah, our stuff, job, yeah, basically our subsidy means that we can reduce ticket prices, so we can make sure the that the program is accessible to anyone who wants to have a go. You can get a ticket for a fiver to almost every show um, that we make here. Um, and also, it means that we can take risks. We can take risks. Um, we don't just have to do things that we know will work. Um, and that allows the art form to develop. That's part of our part of our job. Um, but all of that, when you know that when you're talking about the subsidy, it does bring responsibility with it. So we've got to engage every community in Bristol as best we can, and we've got to give real opportunities for the artists we find in those communities to develop and discover what they might do. That's that's a, a serious duty. Whenever we try and do something um, because it's like the right thing to do, I mean, <laughs> you know, whenever we talk about things in a way that sounds worthy, it's a massive turnoff. <laughs> if you see what I mean, you, you, we do have a responsibility to engage everyone, but in a way that's not the way, that's not the right mindset. So... One of the things that I wish we'd done better during the time I've been here is, I don't know if you remember, we we did a show which was about the Vench, the playground in Lockleys. Okay, I, yeah, I, I, I think you've mentioned that to me before, but I don't know the internet of it, yeah. And we put it on and we got Jack Thorne who wrote Skins and is a, who wrote Harry Potter in London to write it, you know, and Jeremy Heron to direct it, who's directed a whole load of hits all in, on Broadway and whatever. Um, and it was an absolutely cracking show. It was a musical. Um, and we didn't sell enough tickets for it. And I think it was because somehow or another we said, we said oh, look, this is a story about Bristol. This is a story about Lockleys. And... When people heard us saying that, they thought, well, that's, boy, that's going to be boring then, isn't it? <laughs> um, and we forgot somehow to say, this is the most extraordinary story you'll ever hear. You also, do, I'm do you also interested, I, mean? I am, I, I do. I'm also interested in what you said about the person that wrote it um, or the person that came and directed it. I think that 
But I think there's a real issue, particularly in, in um, screenwriting and stuff as well, is working class stories being told by people that aren't working class or, or stories told about communities where people aren't from. Do you think something like Shane Meadows and how you know, he's Nottingham running through his kind of veins, who he casts, how it works? I think there's been a bit of a problem in Bristol with that. You have a few new people bubbling up now, like Paul Holbrook and people like that, that um, very much want to tell stories about where they're from. And I think that's applicable to, to theatre or to film or to screen writing and but it but it's interesting because i think people are familiar with the whole notion of cultural appropriation now and, and you people wouldn't dream of, of a you know a white person writing something about an asian or a black person and rightly so from that experience now which probably we did 30 40 years ago but when it comes to sort of issues of class it still seems to be kind of like a it's it's a it, it, yeah do you know what i mean it, it's it I still do, runs through I mean, and you can, again, you can think, tell that yeah i think we messed that up because jack who wrote it who's done wrote harry potter and all that um the story of this show, which is called Junkyard, was about a school teacher who built the Vench. Um, and the school teacher who built the Vench was Jack Thorne's dad. Okay, yeah. He was there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was absolutely, you talk about lived experience, he yeah. was on the bloody fair. He yeah. was hammering the nails in. Okay, yeah. okay, um, yeah. And somehow, but somehow we didn't, we, we, I don't know what it is, but but I know you're a fan of my my brother's work. Yeah, I had a conversation with him about about you know about he was saying, do you have a do you have a duty to put on work by artists who are under, underrepresented? And I said, well, you know, well, sort of. But and he put it much better than I could. He said, I'm interested in those communities because that's where the most interesting stories well, well, are. Well, yes, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's you don't want it to be, a, yeah, you don't want it to be a, about, it's not a little pat on the head. You're not doing a favour yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And this I think, is yeah, the people yeah. who've lived these fights are like, actually, Giles Torreira, who wrote The Meaning of Zong, you know, um, are the people with the hottest stories to tell. This is, it's just, you know, that's, if we tell them right, um, that's where the great, kind of creative renaissance that we might be on the edge of is going to come from. I think so. And I think it's slowly kind of happening. I do feel that, uh, and I think I know others do in the city, you know, and, you know, in London as well, where there is more opportunity and there is more diversity of, of, of kind of faces and people being involved, but commissioners and directors and people who hold the sort of purse strings or people who hold the decision of what will be commissioned or what could still tend to come from a certain stratosphere, I, I would argue. Would, would yeah, you, they do, yeah. yeah. And I think until, yeah, that, until that fully changes, we're still going to have sometimes missing the beat a little bit. Unless you have, you know, I'm not saying you have to be of that. You know, you've got somebody who's a real, got a real empathy and a real ear and a real eye for that stuff, then fine. But I'm not, you know, I work in media. I've been around, you know, as you know, sort of different organisations. I'm not sure that's also, that's always the case. Um, yeah. Let's, let, let, let's touch on that. And you've just mentioned him. Uh, interesting story. I'll fess up and I'll say, I got to admit, I mean, I can, I can be a bit like that. When I, I did waltz over to you at the bar, I'd seen you at the, at the city conversations. I was a little bit like, who's this Blake from the, you know, from the theater. Um, you know, he's got his cravat on around his neck. He's talking <laughs> with a plum in his mouth. He, uh, who is he? You know, this sort of stuff. He, what does he know about city? And, uh, and I, um, uh, and I think I must've vocalized that to a couple of, to a couple of people. No, 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 Tom's all right. He's a, he's this, he's that. And then somebody went, you, you know his brother's Chris Morris, don't you? And I went, what? 
when his brother's Chris Morris. Was he? Oh, well, he must be all right then. If his brother's Chris <laughs> Morris, he's like, and they're like, you know, he's one of my heroes. Like, yeah. So Chris Morris from today today, Brass Eye, uh, um, Three Lions, total comic genius. Uh, it's the bravery and the anarchism that taking it beyond the edge, um, unlike anybody. Yeah, it's it's really so. Um, now, what I will say is that, um, of course, that didn't come out of nothing f- with him. But he was, as you probably know, he was he was doing little jobs on BBC Radio Bristol. That's how yeah. he started because he was a student in the city here, um, and it took him quite a long time to work up to um, whatever that period of extraordinary creativity um and once he did that um it was you know um i was quite quietly messing up my own life at the same time but the um it it wasn't like there was a it, it was never um never any difficulty really being that guy's brother because the work is so self-evidently extraordinary it's really not like anything i do um I think in terms of his impact on the cultural landscape, it's a different, it's a completely different order. You mean, what are you moving on to? Have you, have, do you know yet? Or? I've run one theatre before here. I ran a place called the Bassey Arts Centre, which was a, it still is, a, you know, a fantastic experimental theatre in South London. And after I did that for nine years, and I was so knackered after that that I then went and did, I became a, an associate working at the National Theatre and I didn't have any responsibility for running anything and I could just get on with um, making shows. So the first thing I, I want to do is is just that, is just make some shows and get on with it and, and not be thinking about running an organisation Okay, which was your background, wasn't it? You're not somebody that, uh, which, which is interesting because more and more now you get directors or CEOs that kind of bounce between different sectors. You are somebody that's lived and breathed theatre, and you know you've direct you've directed stuff and come into that position. You you won a, like a you know Tony Award is is a fairly prestigious award, isn't it? In in 2019 for uh, War Horse, which was a, a, a Broadway production. Um, you know, you've 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 produced several operas. You know, you can tell I'm reading this off Wikipedia, can't you? As I'm saying it to you, <laughs> including the death of the King Hoffer. I've ne- I've never heard of any of these. Got to be honest. Um, but that's more about that says more about me than anything. Don't worry. Um, and somebody's described your tastes. His tastes are Catholic and frequently risky, but they can produce some of the most inspired, inventive theatre in Britain today. So you were both Catholics growing up, were you? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went okay. to a, uh, yeah. Catholic when he school. says his taste to Catholic, what does that even mean? Like, what, what, what is it? To, what is a Catholic means, taste? I don't know. The word Catholic, I think it means um, like a bit of everything. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like not quite. You know, not just. I'm not just like. Oh, he's the Chekhov guy. I see. I see. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So you're going to be going back to to doing to making stuff. Yeah. To directing yeah. stuff. To write, writing. And, okay. And great. Also, yeah. like you, I I feel that. At the moment, now I I love this theatre with an almost indecent passion, and I and what it means is that when I get involved in conversations about what should happen um, to support culture in Britain, whatever the question is, I think the answer is you've got to invest in Bristol Old Vic, <laughs> right? Because I'm so loyal to it. I can't, you know, th- we're at a point of history which is chaotic 
terrifying and full of potential. And I, I want, I really want to have some time to think about what the hell um, I, I might do, what stories I might want to tell in that world. I, the answer might not be invest in Brislovic. You know, that might, I might want to find some different answers and try and tell stories in different ways because it is it is both exciting and frightening at the moment, I think. I don't know what you think. Yeah, and it's interesting that, that all, this whole thing came up, didn't it, as it often does in... in um in times of austerity, you know, throughout history, this this sense of during the pandemic when Rishi was dishing out the um, the the kind of COVID grants and, and and all that kind of stuff that they were some people were like, well, you know, it's it's just arts are not essential, are they? You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's it's the it's the nurses, it's the it's the it's the teachers. This is a sort of frivolous thing. Uh, are and a lot of people they really kick back against that. It's the it's the epitome of of uh, of life of of being alive and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, presumably you're going to be in the in the latter camp. Um, do you think this government are anti arts and, and they kind of see it as being a, a sort of snooty thing that they just don't see as being important and essential and is, and it's, it's very much under threat because of that. It's 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 really confusing. So the first the first thing is that. In during the when the, when the pandemic hit and all theatres were closed and all that kind of stuff, um, w- lots of people working in theatre just thought we're all going to go bust. We can't persuade this government to invest at this point. Two things happened. First is um, the job retention scheme, the furlough scheme, which it transpires was a was born out of a. a a series of conversations with the TUC um, and other Labour groups and a very wide consultation in order to put that together. And I hope someone's writing the book about those conversations because I was really surprised when I heard that. I thought it was just some kind of Tory back of an envelope thing, but it wasn't. It was There was a proper, there was a proper um, set of very rapid conversations. Well, so that, it was very much pushed and lobbied by yeah, some, some of the unions. Yeah, the, the, the general secretary of the of the of the TUC was talking about it on the radio last week. But um, of course, where it's more complicated it, with theatre and with arts. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a freelancer. I prefer it that way. But that people, you know, we were like, you know, if you're a freelance and you're you the were whole, stuffed. You're, yeah. you're stuffed, and we had to wait. We didn't know what was going on. I think, and that yeah. was for the whole of your industry, really. Yeah. So so then the weird thing was. So once once the job retention scheme was out, we were going okay. So all the organisations are going to go bust, and um, but no, instead there was a lot of lobbying again. But the government decided to invest in in the creative industries to protect them. Now they didn't do it um, comprehensively, um, and they the freelance workforce was decimated. No question, you know, within that. So there were all sorts of mistakes made. But they did decide to invest in it. But I also think it's quite easy, a bit like the Brexit thing, to sort of twist and poke and push that narrative a bit. And it feels to me a little bit, you know, Nadine Norris and sort of her kind of ilk a bit, that are somehow trying to 
and this happened during the pandemic. So I was trying to say that theatre, art, music is a, it's not essential. Do you get what I'm driving at? I don't explain that very well. I do. It's, I mean, yeah. this is weird because some of the analysis that went into the Cultural Recovery Fund, as far as I can tell, was basically saying, they were saying, yeah, we understand that the creative industries contribute a huge amount to the economy and we can't let them fall over. We also understand that these creative organizations contribute a huge amount to the societies that they serve. And what we don't want is after the pandemic to all of those kind of soft benefits for not just Bristol, places all over the country for those not to be there. Now, they seem to have understood that. But as we know, there are lots of aspects of this government's behavior which are psychotic Alongside that, you know, which in which there's no consistency of thought or analysis. And you just don't know what's going to come out of this minister or that minister's mouth next, because there's all of this terror about the kind of leadership paranoia and trying to trying to sort of bolster support in front of by-elections with appalling kind of divided rule politics. And all of that kind of shit gets in the way of actually some quite impressive analysis that happened which said we need to invest in this and 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 what what is going to come out of that i've just got no idea i've just got no idea it's so unstable isn't it it's so hard to predict because some of the thinking is actually quite impressive Brother needs to come he back did, and, does, and, and but... satirise. It's a bit like, you know, the sort of Black Mirror thing, isn't it, at the moment? It's all gone, you know, the yeah. Charlie Higgs thing has gone that way. I think somebody needs to come and do it and do it well. And I think he's the man to do it. Yeah, I'll tell him. I'll tell him yeah. that there's a message. There's a call Tell him I said him. that. Because I've got something in common with him as well. I've also been kicked out of Radio Bristol. So, Have you? so that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, in a slightly more less, in a slightly more subtle underhand way than, than, right. and, and, and less than, than Chris's, which I think was quite public. Why yeah. did he get sacked, by the way? Do, do you know? Yeah, yeah. He was doing, um, he decided to do a commentary. There's a bit, I don't know whether you were ever running the late, shift but there's a bit where radio bristol handed over um to radio two i think for the national news yeah and he decided to leave his microphone open and do a a commentary (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what possessed him i've never of what of what commentary on the news oh he's commentating on the news as the news was happening love it that's amazing and i don't know whether it was planned or what i don't i don't know i've never asked him and the funny interesting, the, the chap who we used to do a show with, um, Steve Yabsley, is still there, isn't he? I think yeah, he is, still, yeah. Yeah, Yabsley's yeah. still there. Yeah, and he's, and he, in fairness, Yabsley's, Yabsley's pretty funny, I think. Um, yeah, and that, that's, that's classic. That's classic, the fact that... So he he left, chucked out of Radio Bristol, and then... Um, and did that get did that get a bit of press coverage and stuff? At the I time, think a bit it before did, my yeah. Time. Probably, yeah, probably yeah. launched his career. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> well, usually, yeah, I mean, I've gone from straight to straight since I've left as well, so it's kind of a... <laughs> Nancy, uh, the new uh, director, incoming director, um, just, just, you know, hopefully we want to try and get her on at some point to talk to her as well. Um, her background is uh, she's been involved in theatre herself, you know, in Bristol and elsewhere in, in, in London. So she's, you're quite pleased with her appointment for her coming in? She's lived in Bristol for longer than I have. She's, she moved to Bristol 14 years ago as a theatre director. Um, I think she came here to get married, but she'll tell you that. And um, was work, trying to work out how to make a career 
as a theatre maker in Britain and ended up going to train to, to do the director's course at Bristol Olympic Theatre School. Has been, you know, building her career um, in Bristol and increasingly in London and all over the country. And she's a absolutely fantastic director, absolutely, you know, out of the the top draw. The the show that I last saw of hers, I think, was Trouble in Mind at the National Theatre, which was just brilliantly, brilliantly staged play. Um, and she's also passionately interested in Bristol and she understands it from the inside. And she's set up a theatre school in Bristol, the Bristol School of Acting, because she thought there were people from ordinary backgrounds in Bristol who weren't getting a look in to creative opportunity. So I think she's a really, really exciting And would she woman. be one of the only women of colour directors in theatre in the country? Would that be correct? Um, well, there's a. she's not the only one, but she's... Well, one, one of the only Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say she's one of the best. Yeah, she is. Um, yeah, and and um, yeah, she's. But but she's got. The, the, she's also a leader. There's different things. You know, she's a. There are lots of brilliant um, black directors in in Britain, um, but she's also a natural leader. She's she's. And she directors will... of theatre companies. So, so for people, so obviously being a director of a of a play or being director of an entire institution is a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or not? Yeah. Well, there's Natalie Ibu runs the the um, the theatre in Newcastle, um, and uh, Indu Ruba Singham runs the um, the Kiln in in London. So there are there are some. There's some right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She's not absolutely the first, but she, but she's um, as I say, I think she's the best. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Did you have anything to do with the appointment? No, no, I mean, quite no. rightly, we've got a brilliant, brilliant chair, a guy called Bernard Donahue, um, and, a, and a wonderful uh, deputy chair called Sardo Gierde, who you should, also, you should also get her on, on your... Yeah, she's on the list, on yeah. This, yeah she's, she's involved in um, such Black a South West Network, isn't she? That's yeah. A, yeah, that's yeah. her organisation. Yeah. So they're the chair and deputy chair, and... Um, these things work best if the outgoing artistic director's got nothing to do with it. So it's not like Alex Ferguson when he left no. Man United <laughs> no, no. handing it on to well, David Moyes. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's, it was. Yeah. You've just got to get out of the way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I will say, I will say on the wider point around uh, the old Vic, because funny enough, whilst I didn't go to the old Vic much in my sort of latter teens, 20s, early 30s. Um, I did used to go to the Steam Rock nightclub directly opposite. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, 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 which was utterly horrendous. But I, it was the only place that you could get in after a certain time because it was so terrible. Uh, but I had some good nights in there, yeah. But what, what my point is, I, now I'm too old for that stuff. I The new bar you've got and the new setup in there um, will draw people in, I think, because you've got good beer good food you can even go in there and not watch theatre really you can't can. to be fair you know it, um, it's so knows good the you end don't game, have but... to watch the shows <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, great thank you Tom alright um, good luck good luck with your uh, new uh, new ventures when you decide what they're going to be thank you very much and do please say hello to your brother I will uh, in a, you know give him my my, uh, my reverence and respect I'll and, give him um... exactly that <laughs> thank you all the best Tom alright cheers cheers bye, bye.
Many thanks to the outgoing director of the Bristol Old Vic, Tom Morris, for talking to us this week on Bristol Unpacked. And we will be back next week with a brand new guest and a fantastic topic. Take care. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm the presenter, Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Afra Evans, our audio editor, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music.